Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood and it's story time. And the move that never ends that I was uh, complaining about last week is now more or less finally ended. It's just come to the point where it's uh, get everything situated in the new place and go and figure out the plans for the future. An open house for the old house, uh, just yesterday, this is Sunday as I'm repeating, recording this, and yeah, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully it gets sold quick, because right now doing the mortgage and rent and a few other things, all that are uh, rather not fun to combine. So, now yeah, we'll just get right to it here. Uh, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago at the passing of the night last we. Uh, left our intrepid crew. They had come across the weird spaceship out in space that would look like it had been damaged somehow. Uh, they determined that they were going to pass uh, three quarters of an AU away from it, and that uh, there really, really wasn't anything they could do because if they stopped to try to help these people, whoever they were, uh, then they'd be screwed because they only have enough fuel to speed up, get to where they're going, slow down, maneuver, and dock. So that was it until the life pod popped off from the uh, derelict ship there and started to accelerate at mind-blowing rates and uh, in order to catch up with them on the Pericles to dock and and uh, supposedly dock and maybe take shelter on board uh, their ship. And the captain determined, well, I can't keep this under the... Uh, under wraps anymore, sound action stations, and get everybody in the crew involved. And now that's what we're up to next. Hope you enjoy. I'll talk to you again after we finish reading. And as always, I apologize that it's me doing the reading and not a pro. Passing in the Night, Prelude to the Pericles Conspiracy. Written by me. And read by me. Standard procedure in the event of a general emergency was to muster the crew in the command center. By the time Carlton, Allison, and the captain arrived, everyone else had gathered, the night shift looking must and bleary-eyed. The captain strode to the front of the small crowd with a brisk, business-like pace. Turning to face them, she placed her hands on her hips and spoke in a commanding tone. All right, people, we've got a situation. Carl, the video, please. Carlton stepped up to the main display screen's control workstation and tapped into command. The recording began playing on the screen to a collective gasp from the crew. Their expressions ranged from awe to excitement to curiosity to fear as the captain related the events leading up to Carlton sounding the general alarm. Malcolm, the shift engineer, spoke up in the silence that marked the conclusion of her briefing. How do we know it's a life pod and not a weapon of some sort? The captain answered, we don't. But it wouldn't make any sense to attack us, would it? Fair enough. How long till it gets here? The captain looked at Carlton and he answered, it stopped accelerating and is running at 0.98 C. It's 3.5 AU's astern, so we have about 15 and a half hours. The captain spoke again. 
we are obligated to render assistance, now that it is possible to do so without stranding ourselves. In the next 15 hours, we need to figure out how we're going to do that, and then get it done. There are protests, of course. Several of the crew wanted nothing to do with rescuing unknown aliens who may or may not have as their intention the slaughter of every human on board so they could claim Pericles as their own. Only the inevitability of being overtaken whether they liked it or not got everyone on board with the notion. They set to work. It was an easy decision not to bring the aliens aboard in Section 4, if only to keep them as far away from the children as possible. Section 2 contained hydroponics and consumable storage, there, it would be relatively easy, if time-consuming, for Malcolm and his text to redirect some of the ventilation to raise oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in a few compartments near the Section 2 airlock so the aliens would have a better chance at adjusting to the atmosphere. It would mean less carbon dioxide going to feed the crops, but in general they received more than they needed anyway, so it was a relatively safe move. What to do with the aliens for the duration of the flight was another matter. Allison was hard-pressed to give an opinion as to whether the cryosuspension units would be usable. They were designed to sustain humans, after all. With no idea as to the aliens' metabolism, there was no telling what the units would do to them. All the same, she was able to modify a few unused units to supply gases in closer proximity to the concentrations observed from the alien vessel. That just left figuring out how to ask them to be guinea pigs. With all due respect to his wife and the captain, Carlton wasn't about to place odds on their chances of accomplishing that. The final question was how to get the aliens aboard. Carlton and Zven, his night shift colleague, had that task. They brainstormed a few ideas, but were unable to come up with a viable solution until Rachel, the teacher, reminded them of the mooring lights. Pericles, like every other Starliner, had a number of movable, high-powered spotlights mounted in various places on the hull. Their purpose was to aid in mooring, but the crews also put them to good use for other tasks. They were ready-made to point the aliens where to go. Early in the planning process, the captain ruled out the airlocks in the crew's acceleration quarters or in the shuttle bay. Pericles had one short-range shuttle for commuting back and forth to space stations without full mooring facilities, stored in the same bay where the replacement nav beacons were housed. Getting the aliens from there to a suitable living area would be complex and the crew would be in a less than optimal defensive posture should things turn hostile. So that left the rings. Both were equipped with four airlocks, one in each section. Ring A's faced forward, ring B's aft. The logical choice was the airlock to section 2, ring A. Preparations took most of the time available, but the key players managed to sleep a few hours before the rendezvous. With a half hour to go, the welcoming committee met in the command center. The captain, of course, would take the lead. Sven had relieved Carlton as pilot on duty, so Carlton had the job as the captain's second. Allison would provide medical assistance if needed. Malcolm insisted on coming along, with Bryce, Stephanie, and James, one of the horticulturists, in case things got ugly. Carlton was surprised that the captain agreed to that, and even more surprised when she ordered the small arms locker open. All Starliners had a small cache of weapons on board, nothing special, a couple dozen slug throwers and a few plasma rifles, just enough for basic defense. The odds of ever needing them were very small, but there were a number of circumstances that might require it. Carlton always viewed the weapons the same as a condom. Better to have one and not need it, than to need one and not have it. All the same, except to conduct periodic inventories, he had never seen the small arms locker opened. Carlton gave the captain a wry grin as he strapped on a slug thrower. Don't do anything provocative, right, captain? She sniffed. 
Nothing in the procedure about committing suicide. Pulling the straps of her own holster tight, she straightened and looked over the other members of the team. Everybody ready? They all nodded, doing their best to look calm. Bryce wasn't doing so well at acting, Carlton noted. He licked his lips and adjusted his grip on his plasma rifle every few seconds, and his eyes darted around. He bore watching. It took a few minutes to get to Section 2. Fortunately, each ring had an intra-ring transit system, a small rail car that allowed swift transport between the various sections. Without the rail, it would have been a long walk. Nevertheless, by the time they arrived at the airlock, they were only about ten minutes until the IFBOD caught up with Pericles. The airlock was a standard inner and outer door design. To the right of the inner door was a walk-in storage area containing spacesuits and emergency breathing equipment. On the other side, a display screen and control workstation was installed in the wall. Malcolm and Stephanie retrieved breathing equipment from the storage area while the captain activated the workstation's intercom. All set at the airlock. How are our visitors? Sven answered promptly from the command center. Five million kilometers astern and closing, Captain. Ready to secure ring rotation at your command. Is Janet ready? Yes, ma'am. Right, stand by. The captain turned away from the console. She took a moment to don a breathing mask and tank, but didn't seal the mask, instead letting it hang loose around her neck. Her poise impressed Carlton. He was about ready to jump out of his skin, anxious as he felt. But the captain was in total control. He guessed that's why she got the big bucks. I'll order Janet to adjust atmospheres in this section after we're sure there's not going to be a problem. Be at the ready, but don't do anything to provoke them. With that, she turned back to the workstation and keyed the shipwide intercom. This is the captain. We're about ten minutes from contact. Prepare for zero G. Her voice still echoed down the corridor as she switched back to the command center. Sven, secure ring rotation. Aye, Captain. A pause followed while he keyed the command. Stopping sequence initiated. Band brakes applied, thrusters firing. Rings will be secured in eight minutes. Very well. The captain tapped a few commands on the workstation and the display screen came to life in two-pane format. The approaching life pod appeared in one pane and a high-level ship status display appeared in the other. Already, the rings were beginning to slow perceptibly on the display. Carlton could feel a small force pushing him toward the far bulkhead as the rings slowed. The band brakes were huge. Carlton had seen one of them removed from the ship's hub during the last maintenance upkeep. Even though he knew intellectually how large it had to be to slow the millions of kilograms of mass contained in each ring, he was nonetheless stunned when he saw it for himself. But large and powerful as they were, the band brakes were nowhere near enough to stop the rings all by themselves in any reasonable period of time, just as the spinning motors were not powerful enough to get the rings moving by themselves. So the Starliners used thrusters, aligned to impart force in line with or opposed to the ring's direction of rotation to assist. Over the next several minutes, the deceleration force remained small but detectable. It wasn't enough to move an adult standing still, but if you were walking, you might find yourself turning without realizing it. Low-mass objects and children tend to get pushed, though, so procedure required checking all inhabited compartments for stowage and strapping the children in before starting or stopping the rings. More noticeable, the centripetal acceleration from the ring's movement lowered, making everything feel lighter. Then, there was no weight at all. The most minuscule movement pushed Carlton off the floor, and once more he found himself floating in zero-g. His favorite. Sven's voice piped up over the intercom. Ring rotation secured, Captain. Zero-g in all compartments. Farewell, Sven. Proceed as briefed. Let me know if anything unexpected occurs. Aye. 
then there was nothing to do but wait. On the display screen, the range of the life pod ticked down quickly, and its bearing rate began to increase. It looked like the aliens would pass down Pericles' port side. As the range lowered to 10,000 kilometers, the life pod's forward velocity began lowering rapidly. Interestingly, the blue-purple glow still appeared from that one location near the far side of the craft. Carlton had presumed that glow was a thruster of some sort before, but if that were the case, it wouldn't be slowing them down now, would it? Hmm, that was puzzling. The captain shifted the other pane from ship's status to one of the hull monitoring cameras. Mounted to stern of the bridge facing aft and upward, it provided a good view of the now motionless rings and the Section 2 airlock stopped at the 230 position. When the life pod closed to within 100 kilometers as briefed earlier, Sven shut off Pericles' hull illumination lights. Only the collusion avoidance strobes set at intervals around the rings and the running lights at the bow and stern remained lit. In the hull monitoring camera, Pericles became a dim object, barely discernible from the interstellar darkness beyond. Then, when the life pod closed to 20 kilometers, Sven turned on four of the powerful spotlights. Two illuminated the life pod itself, and two illuminated the Section 2 airlock outer door. On the display, the life pod image completely filled the aft upper camera's field of view, so Captain shifted to a hull monitoring camera and tracked it in. Much harder to see without the larger magnification, it took a couple minutes to find the life pod as it stopped its relative motion amidships, about five kilometers to port. There it stayed for what seemed an eternity. In reality, the eternity was just a few minutes. Carlton could imagine the conversation going on aboard the life pod. What do they intend? Should we go aboard or take our chances in the void? Foolish earthlings, don't they know we mean to kill them all and take their women? Well, on second thought, the alien creatures would probably have no interest whatsoever in human women, but he couldn't rule out hostile intent in his mind, however dire the aliens' circumstance. He found himself reflexively fingering his slug thrower, and thinking maybe Bryce wasn't so out of line in his jumpiness. The life pod turned and began to close with Pericles. It quickly closed the kilometers from its holding position and took up position in front of the airlock. The captain shifted the camera view to one located not far from the airlock itself. From that angle, they could see the life pod rotate in space until one of the circular markings Carlton saw earlier faced the airlock door. The life pod began moving ever so slowly toward the airlock outer door, and everyone took a reflexive step backward. Except the captain. She remained at the workstation. As the life pod drew near, she entered a command, and Carlton could see through the windows on the inner door, the outer door, slide open. He swallowed, trying to loosen the lump in his throat. Glancing around, it looked as though his fellows were doing the same. A tube extended from the life pod. A docking device, no doubt, but it was like no device Carlton had ever seen because the end of the tube, where the ceiling surface was, morphed in shape as it approached the airlock until it exactly matched the mating surface on the outer airlock doorframe. Carlton's jaw dropped as the life pod made contact, and the contact lights on the airlock status display illuminated. How did they do that? He glanced at Malcolm and saw he wasn't the only one surprised by this. It wasn't often that Malcolm was impressed, but he wore an awed expression on his face. The captain pressed a button on the workstation and the display shifted to a camera inside the airlock. Carlton heard the hissing sound of rushing air and the airlock interior pressure indication rose until it reached normal atmospheric, then held steady. One minute later, the pressure hadn't dropped. It was a good seal. Sven, positive seal on the airlock, commence ring rotation. 
Sven sounded more than a little on edge when he responded. Aye, Captain. Spin sequence activated. Thrusters firing. Spinning motors online. Sven's voice came over the shipwide intercom, announcing the imminent return of G's. Then a moment later, ever so slowly, the ring began to move. The mating tunnel flexed a bit, but the seal held, and the life pod began moving with the ring. The welcoming committee spread out as the closest bulkhead moved up toward them. One by one, the team members struck it and pushed themselves down to the deck. Carlton always found this part amusing. Ever so often, a newbie wouldn't watch himself when rotation started and would end up getting tangled up with other people. This group was all seasoned, though, so the transition from zero-g to steadily building centripetal acceleration was smooth. They rearranged themselves in a semicircle around the airlock inner door, with the captain a pace ahead of the others. For a few minutes, nothing happened. The gravity slowly built until they were about two-thirds of Earth normal. Then, on the display, Carlton saw the outer door on the life pod slide open. This was it. Four figures emerged from the life pod. Dressed in loose-fitting gray garments that were not dissimilar to those the humans wore, the aliens were bipedal, as Allison predicted, but they had short tails. They walked barefoot with a hunch and quick, fluid steps. Their gait changed abruptly as they passed from the mating tunnel into the airlock. A step that in the tunnel had barely made their heads bob caused their entire bodies to lift a centimeter or two off the deck. Artificial gravity, Malcolm said, echoing Carlton's thoughts. How do they manage that without spinning, I wonder? The quartet paused in the airlock, and the humans got a better look at them on the display. They were smaller than an average human, but appeared powerfully built. They wore breathing masks, but their facial features were clearly visible. They looked almost feline, with peaked ears atop their heads and elongated snouts, but they were hairless. Their skin was a yellow-orange color with streaks of green, and it shimmered somewhat as they moved. It took Carlton a minute to figure out the reason. Their skin was scaled. Their hands were three-fingered with opposable thumbs, another point in Allison's favor. Their fingers ended in small points rather than in pads. The alien in front moved an instrument of some kind from a pouch on its belt. After studying the instrument for a moment, the alien made a gesture and said something. As it spoke, it revealed razor-sharp teeth and a green, flicking tongue. All that was fine and dandy, but Carlton zeroed in on one last detail more than the others. They all had what looked like the hilt of a sword sticking up over the right shoulders and what could only be holsters on their hips. Be ready, the captain said, and unsnapped the holster on her slug thrower. She noticed the weapons, too. From the corner of his eye, Carlton saw Bryce and Stephanie raise their plasma rifles to their shoulders. They all looked tense. Bryce was sweating up a storm. The lead alien knocked on the interior door with the instrument it had just used. The sound traveled easily to Carlton's ears. For some reason, it seemed ominous. Allison, are you filming? Allison had refused the thought of carrying a weapon. She was a doctor, not an undertaker. Instead, she brought along a video recording device. Sven was making recordings of every external and internal camera feed, but few of them had audio, and they didn't cover every area that might be needed. So her recording was going to be the most vital. Yes. All right. Malcolm, open the door. Malcolm stood closest to the control station. He nodded and hit the inner door control switch. The door opened. There was a slight hiss and a small breeze as the pressures between the two spaces equalized. The aliens stepped, one by one, into the room. They looked over the group of humans slowly, then their leader took a step toward the captain. Oh, Jesus, Bryce murmured, 
drawing Carlton's gaze. The guy was shaking badly. Malcolm, the closest to him, looked at Bryce with concern. Either the captain didn't hear it or it didn't register. She managed to smile and said, Welcome aboard. The lead alien cocked its head to the side. It studied the captain for a moment after she spoke, then said something that sounded a mix between a hiss and a bark. The leftmost alien reached for its holster. Bryce shouted, Oh, Jesus! and fired his plasma rifle. Everything seemed to happen at once. Well, isn't that how it always works out, right? You have a plan, you brief the plan. You go to execute the plan, everything's going well, and then one guy has to go and screw the whole thing up by doing something stupid. In this case, shooting at the aliens who are coming on your ship for the first contact ever between aliens and humankind. Good job, Bryce. Well played, sir. Well played. That's not at all going to have bad outcome for this thing, right? Not going to get your whole crew slaughtered. But, well, maybe it won't. I guess we'll see. Uh, you'll have to come back next week to find out, though, because this one's already getting to about the length that I like to go to. And it's a nice, uh, dramatic, cliffhangery end to this episode. Um, we'll finish up Passing of the Night next week, and you can uh, decide how much you like the outcome. If you can't wait till then, of course, you can go buy the thing. Uh, you go to MichaelKingsWhat.com to the bookstore. I go to SSNStory.com to shop. And it goes to the same place, really. And uh, pick it up in ebook or paperback straight from me, and I get the most money that way. Of course, you can be a stick in the mud and go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Kobo or Google Play and all that stuff if you really want to give them money more than you want to give me money. But, you know, that's entirely up to you. Um, yeah, but please, regardless, uh, please spread the word about the podcast and the videos and like and subscribe and tell everyone how cool I am, even if I'm not cool. You can tell everyone I'm a loser. That's okay, as long as you tell somebody. Good press. No, bad press is good press, right? Um, but I think I mentioned last week, uh, don't do the Patreon thing anymore, right? Because Patreon has decided that they're going to cut off people that they don't agree with politically or whatever. And I don't agree with doing that sort of thing. So I refuse to give Patreon any money. Uh, in fact, I used to support a whole bunch of people on Patreon. And as soon as Patreon started doing its uh, finger-wagging, virtue-signaling, cutting off of uh, folks for political purposes disguised by uh, supposed terms of use things, but of course that's never true, um, I said, oh, I sent a note to every person that I supported on Patreon and said, sorry, I'm out, and uh, canceled Patreon. But I found recently, in recent months, how to uh, do a Patreon-esque thing myself, thanks to a uh, nice lady that I met at a business workshop a few months ago. And so I set up a membership thing on my website at michaelkingswood.com. It says supporting patronage on the main menu there. And uh, you can go in there and uh, do... One-time or recurring uh, membership thing uh, where, hey, you just like the thing, give a buck a month. Hey, cool. If you like the podcast, just like listen to it and like giving uh, a little support, that's great. If you want stories, extra stories, or we just want uh, access to everything I put out ever, there are different tiers for that, just like you would have on Patreon, except I control this. 
and I am not into political discrimination. I don't care what your political views are as long as you like my stuff and you want to give me money, I'll take it. And I'm not here to silence anybody else or dictate any narrative. Because I think I've said in the past, I'm not doing this for any particular... Oh, I don't do causes. Right? Um, no, really. I, and trying to think of any particular cause. You know, I've read, raised money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society a bunch of times over the years with marathons and stuff and various other things. And oh, if you want to say that's a cause, fine. But... In terms of these high flutin, I'm gonna change the world. Yeah, plot. No, I don't do causes. I think there are people who do causes for the most part are full of it, um, and delusional if nothing else. Uh, so yeah, I don't do causes. I don't uh, care if you do causes or not, but I don't. So I'm not in this to write these stories to make any kind of social commentary, any kind of or any kind of normative statements. I'm just writing this to have fun. And of course, some discussion of reality will will come up periodically because of that's just the nature of the beast. But I'm not here to shove anything down your throat. And I also ask that you don't shove anything down my throat. Uh, so that's the reason I don't do Patreon anymore. But I'm not above asking for money. So if you want to join my membership thing, then please do. Uh, yeah, so aside from that, if you don't want to do any of that, hey, just come back next week. We will finish up this story next week, and after that, we'll continue on the week after to another one. I think what I'm going to do is passing in the night, as I've told you in the prelude, and the, the title is the prelude to the Pericles Conspiracy, which is the novel that I wrote to follow up this story, because this tells the story, obviously, of this meeting in space. But as you'll see... In the end of this this particular story, uh, there's a lot more that's going to happen because of it. And I wrote the novel, which is the longest story I've ever written, uh, to follow up on that. And uh, yeah, it, we'll get to it when we get to it. But I think we'll just go straight into it after after we finish this up. Anyway, uh, that's probably about enough for this one. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, spread the word, tell everybody you know, and just come back next week. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. That's an order. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>